Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish podcast for independent minds. Guns in America. I want to prevent the next mass shooting from happening. Obtaining a court order to prevent gun sales or remove guns from individuals who pose a threat. Strengthening background checks, right, with an emphasis on mental health. So much of the current debate is based on soundbites. I'm the biggest fan of the Second Amendment. We also want to make sure that we protect people's due process rights. And not substance. To help them make America safe. I'm going to protect the Second Amendment rights. The following conversations intend to fix that. Sirius XM's POTUS presents Aiming for Facts, a week-long deep dive into America's gun culture. Critical thinking. Facts. Open and honest discussions on all sides of the gun debate in this country. Now, here's Michael Smirconish. Okay, so of course, data integration, the failure of data integration. You've heard from me on this in the past, but this needs to be a part of our conversation as we aim for facts and take a deep dive into America's gun culture. I guess it was two weeks removed from the shooting in Florida where I went on CNN. And TC, this was the day when, and we've talked about this, we aired it. This was the day when I did a Facebook Live without notes for 15 minutes, was which was just pure emotion-fueled, in where I said... Sleeves. Yeah, where I said this. Well, the commentary I'm about to play is in shirt sleeves. Yeah, yeah. It was. Why you are they fired? Why up. are they shirt sleeves and not short sleeves? Because they're long sleeves. Long sleeves. So therefore, they should be short sleeves. Why are, are they shirt sleeves? Because you said sleeves, shirt sleeves. They're sleeves of your shirt, as opposed to in your jacket. If I'm wearing shorter versions of long sleeves, yes. shouldn't they be called short sleeves? Yes, but you weren't. You were wearing shirt sleeves. You were wearing a long sleeve shirt without your jacket. Therefore, you were in shirt sleeves. Then why aren't they long sleeves? I don't know. But that's not what you asked me. So anyway, on CNN on this particular day, I began the show with a very fiery commentary, albeit not as fiery as the Facebook Live video. And and the news had just broken. And I want to explain to people what they're about to hear. The news had just broken of the 911 calls and the New York Times website had several of the calls posted. So if you can picture me, I I am laying my iPhone against my laptop and hoping that the audio comes through that's what i did in the facebook live video now i go on air and of course with the 
the benefit of all of the production values of CNN, I'm able to tell the story in a much more formal fashion. Here, roll the tape. Last week, as others focused on gun policy, I suggested here a corresponding cause for our national tragedy. And today, in light of new information, let me say it flat out. The Florida school shooting was an epic intelligence failure. It should have been stopped. It never should have happened. In this technological world of Apple and Google, Facebook and Amazon, better management of data by law enforcement needs to keep us safe from mass killings and better integration of that which was in a variety of databases should have kept us safe from this guy. I hate to say his name, but I need to in order to make my points. Nicholas Cruz was not living off the grid like the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, far from it. He was totally plugged in to his community, to law enforcement, and to social media. There was a staggering amount of seemingly searchable information predicting his future path. Consider just some of the electronic breadcrumbs that he left behind. The Broward County Sheriff's Office received 23 calls about this one guy over 10 years, starting when Cruz was just nine years old. That data was all recorded. Since 2010, law enforcement had to respond to his house 39 times, or in a classmate's words, almost every other week. And again, records were kept. The most serious warnings started in February of 2016 when an anonymous caller alerted police that the killer threatened on Instagram to shoot up the school. And Cruz posted pictures of himself with a gun, another electronic marker. Seven months later, a peer counselor reported that the killer possibly ingested gasoline, wanted to buy a gun, and attempted to commit suicide by cutting himself. Days later, an investigator for Florida's Department of Children and Families ruled him a low risk. Still, DCF had a thick file on this guy. That's more data, which could have been integrated. And later that month, the family that initially took the killer in after his mother's death called police to report a fight. 911 emergency, how can I help you? Yeah, there was a fight in my house. Um, the kid and uh, my son. Okay, I'm punching him, and now he left the house, but I need her somebody here because I'm afraid he comes back and he has a lot of weapons. What kind of weapon, ma'am? Uh, um, uh, let me ask my son. What kind of weapon did he get that he's going to get? A Remington. A Remington? Okay, and, and who did this? Uh, Nicholas Cruz. It's not the first time he put a gun on somebody's head. There's more. The family also revealing this disturbing detail. He also dig in the backyard because he knew he was not allowed to bring it here, and we found that he did um, a size for the box. So he was going to bury the gun there. The next day, a tipster from Massachusetts called the sheriff's office to report that Cruz was collecting guns and knives, telling them he will kill himself one day and believes he could be a school shooter in the making. On social media, Cruz posted comments like, I want to die fighting, and I want to shoot people with my AR-15, yet more electronic footprints. And then there was his behavior at school. According to the Miami Herald, teachers and other students said that he kicked doors, that he cursed at teachers, that he fought with and threatened classmates, and brought a backpack with bullets to school. More markers. 
Student Samantha Fuentes, who was injured in the shooting, said students used to joke about Cruz being the next school shooter. Also reports that an investigator with Florida's Department of Children and Families had previously warned the state of Cruz's intentions to buy a gun after his 18th birthday. And then, as predicted, in February of 2017, he purchased the AR-15 that he used to kill those 14 students and three faculty members. The transaction was perfectly legal, but you'd think that a background check should be able to detect all these prior warnings. Last September, a Mississippi bail bondsman flagged for the FBI a YouTube comment from a Nicholas Cruz saying, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. Now, the Washington Post reported that a Nexus search revealed only 22 so-named individuals. That's another searchable database. And still, they didn't stop them. And finally, the FBI admits that they failed to act on a January 5 phone call in which, according to the transcript, yet another unidentified caller told the FBI she feared Cruz was about to explode and was capable of, quote, getting into a school and just shooting the place up. I just want to get it off my chest in case something does happen, and I do believe something's going to happen. After receiving that call, an FBI employee discussed the tip with her supervisor and concluded there was no imminent threat. The case was closed within an hour. The information was never passed on to the FBI's Miami field office. And this is not even a full accounting that I'm giving you. It's inexcusable that all this data wasn't integrated. And I know some of you are listening, you're watching, and you're saying, well, there are civil liberties risks here. I get it. But the protection of Americans of all ages demands better data management about those who pose a gun risk. When any of us makes a rudimentary Amazon or Google search, we trigger all sorts of algorithms that make it hard for us to evade commercial suitors. Why shouldn't law enforcement have the same tools at their disposal? We were a keystroke away from catching this guy. Instead, 17 are dead. It is time to work smarter, not harder. So that's yours truly on the 24th, I think, of February. 24th of February, uh, Broward County was still very raw at that time. It's very raw right now. But that's, that's me saying we got to do a better job of managing, meaning integrating the data, meshing all this information together, as lawmakers continue to decide what they can or are willing to do relative to guns, this ought to be a no-brainer. Manage the blanking data and prevent the next Florida school shooting. Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors over 37,000 companies have already made the move so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. NetSuite.com slash Smirconish. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. This is Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Now, back to Aiming for Facts, a week-long deep dive into America's gun culture with Michael Smirkanish. You heard it first from me here on Sirius XM POTUS, then you heard it again on CNN as I just played the tape. My argument that the lesson of Florida really was one of an epic intelligence failure and me wondering... Why can't we better, we law enforcement, better integrate data? Why can't we better manage information about individuals like the Florida shooter and then stop them in their tracks before they get into a school armed with an AR-15? And there was a big reaction from both radio listeners and television viewers who said, "Okay, Michael, you make sense. We'll grant you that. But what do we then do with the data? And I thought it was a great question. And I said, I will get on the program a prosecutor, not someone at a U.S. attorney level, but someone on a county level who knows their stuff and really is skilled in the courtroom. And so I invited Bruce Castor, who was a two-term Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, my county of residence, district attorney. I didn't want to get off on a tangent with him about his involvement in the Cosby case, but just to give you a little additional background, He's the prosecutor who said, I don't think there's a case to be made here against Cosby. 
his version is that he then set the table for the Cosby victim in the Montgomery County case to then be paid in a civil suit. Uh, it became a campaign issue. He ultimately lost a bid to regain his position as Montgomery County DA. Again, I don't want to get off on that tangent. But as you're about to hear, he read and viewed my CNN commentary, and then I said to him, okay, Bruce, what can someone in your old position do if provided this information? Listen to this conversation. But this is Bruce Castor. Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. Let me let me bolster your credentials before people hear your opinion. And I don't know what your opinion is going to be. You're, you're playing a very important role for me today. But I, I pulled the caster bio. It's like a walk through a rogues gallery. Guy Saleo, Craig Rabinowitz, Caleb Fairley, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me about some of the guys you've prosecuted and how many times you yourself went into a courtroom so that a national audience knows who they're dealing with. Well, I did that in one form or another for almost 30 years. And uh, I did uh, most of the, if not all of the major murder prosecutions that we had um, uh, from about 1987 until about 2007. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I've certainly had an opportunity to, um, to research cases from the beginning, run investigations, and then uh, with an eye toward putting the evidence together early so that we can win it in the courtrooms. And, uh, you know, very seldom are cases actually won by the, the skill of the prosecutor in a courtroom. Occasionally, like Saleo, it is. But most of the time, it's won in the field by investigation. But a case can certainly be lost in the courtroom by the prosecutor not knowing uh, how to handle what was otherwise a good investigation. Uh, so I've been very fortunate to have had terrific investigators and, um, and uh, county jurors who tended to believe me. So in, in, in your career, not only were you f- the first assistant district attorney, which is the role normally of the guy who goes or the woman who goes and tries the cases. But even when you were elected, you still went back and tried them yourself. Yes, I did the uh, the um, most uh, prolific serial killer in Montgomery County history, a guy named uh, John Eichinger, who murdered four uh, people, three young women and a child. Uh, that was a triple death penalty case that I, I tried while I was the district attorney. Uh, also, I think I did Saleo while I was district attorney, and then uh, the guy that, that's at the state hospital that uh, killed the woman in the um, in the hostage standoff, uh, Chikowski, I did him uh, as a uh, uh, as a sitting district attorney. Uh, I, I enjoyed doing that uh, type of work, and when I ran for office, I frankly told the public that I wasn't a particularly adept politician, but I certainly would continue to use my courtroom. Uh, experience uh, if I became district attorney, and I felt like I was obligated to to keep up with that uh, promise, despite the fact that we had a huge office and live in a county of almost a million people, 850,000 people. So if the information about this Florida shooter had been known to you as a local prosecutor in advance, if the police had come to you and said, hey, we've got this guy and look at all these red flags, what what, if anything, could you have done with the information? It's an interesting uh, uh, speculation. Uh, I was uh, discussing on my appearance uh, on the show with my wife this morning, and I keyed in exactly on the same uh, point about the telephone calls that you did. Only 23, they, they admit to, and somebody else reported 46. I mean, 23 is, is enough. And what people uh, in the listening audience should know is the sheriff of a county in Florida is more like the district attorney of a large county in Pennsylvania 
uh, as the chief law enforcement official. When I, when I was district attorney, I would be running those major investigations like the sheriff would in, in Florida. Uh, the sheriff's department in, uh, in Pennsylvania uh, are judicial officers that don't ordinarily engage in, in um, criminal investigation. So it's, it's actually apples to apples when you ask me uh, as a prosecutor, as, as a former district attorney, if I were in that position down in Florida, how I would react, because it's not, it's not a dissimilar role that the sheriff plays in a county in Florida. And if you had even a fraction of this information, the very first thing is, is every state, and I'm sure that Florida is no exception, has an emergency safety valve to commit somebody for a specified period of time for uh, evaluation and analysis. And if there is a, an evaluation on an involuntary commitment like that, that would automatically make it more difficult for that person to purchase a weapon. Uh, so that's the, the first thing that you think of when you're in the position where you're trying to decide what to do with somebody that you may or may not have probable cause that they committed a crime, but you are afraid of their future dangerousness and you think that there's a screw loose uh, inside them, you can get that person uh, committed for an evaluation. Uh, that has the dual purpose of learning whether the, the further mental health treatment is necessary and perhaps extended involuntary commitment, but it also has the, uh, the red flag um, uh, of making it more difficult to purchase a firearm. It doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it much more difficult. And if, if, if the, in a fraction of those calls, um, going back in time, if that had reached the decision-maker's uh, desk, to say, you know, I think we should commit this guy and have him looked at, maybe a whole lot of other bad things that flowed from that would not have occurred. What about terroristic threats? If, if, if you knew that this guy had put in social media his desire to be a professional school shooter in combination with the other data that was out there about him, if you had it all at your disposal, could you have charged him? Probably not. Uh, the Again, uh, Florida statutes are... are certainly distinct from Pennsylvania statutes, but the concept of terroristic threats uh, requires that a, a threat be made and that, that it be uh, imminently able to be carried out. Uh, you, have, you have to have probable cause to, to believe those things. The statement that I'm going to be a school shooter, I want to, I want to grow up to be a school shooter or become one, probably not enough for, for a charge, but certainly is enough to uh, involuntarily commit somebody, uh, especially in light of the mutilation of, of Young, of uh, animals, uh, domestic violence, um, uh, history with knives and, and um, airsoft guns, things that were leading up to. You know, you talk about, um, about people becoming addicted to drugs and they start off with, you know, uh, prescribed drugs and move ultimately to, to uh, illegal drugs. It's kind of a gateway. Those are things that we look at, um, the uh, mutilation of animals, the, the fascination with guns and knives, uh, the short temper, uh, and um, the desire to grab attention by making outlandish statements like I'm going to be a school shooter or, or Nazi-type um, um, sympathies, that kind of stuff. Those are, those are things that we look at to decide whether somebody's future dangerousness is at issue, and we need to look into it. That's probably what they should have done in, in Florida. Uh, I have just 30 seconds left. Any other reaction to my, my complaint about the inability to manage data? Do you buy into the premise? It's fine if you don't. I do buy into the, the premise. I, I, I think that um, post 9-11, law enforcement has done a lot better job of, uh, of uh, being able to know what the right hand and left hand are, are doing. Um, I also think that, that um, 
we we can't rely entirely on the government and police to protect people. People have to figure out ways to protect themselves. And that's the whole national debate we have now about uh, whether there should be arming of teachers and uh, hardened schools. Nicely done. Hey, Bruce Castor, I appreciate very much your being here to, to set it all straight. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be on the program. So that was Bruce Castor, the former district attorney of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, answering the question of what can a prosecutor do when they're provided information about someone like the Florida shooter in advance, if they had all the data integrated? When we come back, a mental health expert who says, this is where it gets even more complicated, that Bruce's solution is just not so simple. In other words, we will find We will learn from the perspective of a mental health provider how can, how do they react when they're given information about someone who poses a potential gun threat to their community. This is Aiming for Facts, Michael Smirconish's week-long deep dive into America's gun culture. On POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Why can't we just stop those angry, unstable young men from buying firearms? Much easier said than done, according to Amy Barnhorst, the vice chairwoman of community psychiatry at the University of California at Davis. Dr. Barnhorst, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you wrote what you wrote for The Times recently because... I'm one of those people who says, why can't we just stop them? (laughs) Not recognizing the difficulty and the way in which you were able to relate a real case that you've dealt with, I think, speaks volumes. Can we walk through the facts of that? Sure. What happened? Well, it was a few months after a school shooting that took place a couple of years ago. I believe it was the Oregon Community College shooting, and the police brought a young man onto the crisis unit where I work, which is kind of like a psychiatric emergency room in terms of what we do there. We assess people to see if they meet criteria to be involuntarily admitted to a hospital. And the police had gone to this guy's house because his, he lived with his parents, and he, um, he was about 20, 21, and his parents had gotten really concerned because he'd been posting these threatening, sort of morbid things on Facebook, um, and his brother thought he'd bought a gun, and he was having a lot of social trouble at school and kind of scaring his classmates. So the police went to his house, worried about this guy, understandably, and they didn't see that any crime had been committed. He was well within his rights to have purchased this gun, which he got legally. Um, but I think the police didn't want to let him go, so they thought, well, he doesn't really you know, fit in the criminal justice pathway. Let's bring him to the mental health pathway. So they brought him to me. So my job is to assess whether or not, you know, he didn't want treatment. He was like, I, I would like to go home. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not dangerous. I'm not mentally ill. I want to get out of here. So if I'm going to keep him and treat him, I have to do so involuntarily. And in California, he either has to be a danger to himself, a danger to somebody else, or not able to provide for his basic needs due to a mental illness. So somebody who's just angry and you know wants to retaliate against their neighbor or is upset because their boss fired them and is potentially violent because of that, that wouldn't qualify because that's not a mental illness. And when I examined this guy, I didn't think that he had any signs of a mental illness. I think he was a really uh, hurt, angry, sullen um, young man who had a lot of people that he felt deserved, he deserved more from, and he wanted to get revenge on them. 
but there was I, I didn't see any signs of a treatable mental illness in him. You just put in my head, uh, I may misstate it, but from law school, I'm thinking of you in California. I'm thinking of, are they a danger to themselves? You're, I'm thinking of Tarasov. I think that's what the case, the landmark case that yes. said, yeah. in your position, that's the issue. And you, how in the world, you know, do you then make that assessment? It puts a heavy burden on you. Well, and just to be clear, Tarasov is, an, is like another potential pathway by which somebody might lose their guns if they meet very specific criteria for Tarasov, they have to make a threat of physical harm against a reasonably identifiable victim. This guy didn't say he was going to hurt so-and-so. So it didn't quite meet Tarasov standards. And Tarasov doesn't require a mental illness. It just requires a threat to be made to a psychotherapist. Um, so that was out. Involuntary commitment, because he's not appearing to be mentally ill, uh, is probably not a viable pathway for him. He's already been sort of shunted out of the criminal justice pathway. So these are all ways where potentially if he had gone deep enough it, through any of these pathways, he would have lost his right to own guns, not just the one he has, but any new ones he tried to buy. But he's he's kind of falling out of every pathway that there is because he's not quite meeting the specific criteria he would have to meet to be prohibited from owning firearms. So am, am I fair to sum up Thus far, Dr. Barnhorst and say, 21-year-old guy with access to a weapon, very angry, who presents at an ER, unless there's a psychiatric illness that can justify involuntary hospitalization, you're powerless. Basically, yeah. So you've got to differentiate, is he an angry guy not predicated on a psychiatric illness? We all get angry. Right. Or is he someone who has a treatable situation exactly. condition exactly and in this case you know i was worried enough about this guy um and i didn't know him i didn't have a lot of history i wasn't actually even able to contact his parents or the police because he wouldn't sign releases of information so i did actually keep him but i knew that that was something of a futile attempt because there's due process in all of these pathways and Eventually, he gets to go before a judge and argue that he's not mentally ill, that he's not dangerous, and he wants out. And that judge agreed with him, following the letter of the law, that this guy had, you know, he was going to uphold his rights. And he let him go. He let him go. And, and had he ever been medicated? Did he ever agree to any treatment whatsoever? No. And to be honest, I, I'm not sure what medication I would have given him. Mm -hmm. Maybe anger management, but no medication. Right. <laughs> I wish that came so, in a pill. So you know that this is the kind of a case where someone like me with a microphone, if it had taken a turn thereafter, would be saying, oh, and this uh, Dr. Barnhorst, you know, she let the guy go. Of course. Yeah. And this is happening all over Florida. People are pointing the finger at all kinds of agencies, the child welfare people, the FBI, the police who had been called to the house multiple times saying, how could you have let this guy go? How did you not see he was dangerous? What I think people miss is that just because you can see something is coming doesn't mean you can stop it. The police had no recourse. The mental health system couldn't do anything involuntarily. I'm not sure what child welfare could have done, but certainly not take his semi-automatic weapons out from his house. So what's the answer? Well, it's it's a tricky one. Um, one thing that a lot of states are doing right now is something called an emergency, uh, or sorry, extreme risk protection order or gun violence protection orders. So, um, Connecticut and Indiana had similar legislation for many years before California, Washington, and Oregon passed these laws a few years ago. And as of 2017, 20 more states 
and then now the federal government are considering them. And what it is is it's modeled after a domestic violence protection order where a concerned family member or police officer can petition a judge for a warrant to remove somebody's guns because they believe that that person is at imminent risk of harming themselves or somebody else and that they can prohibit them from purchasing new guns while the order is in effect. Like everything else, there's due process involved. So if an angry, spiteful neighbor says, I'm going to get it back at you by getting your guns away, you know, maybe that works for a week before you go to court before the judge and you explain what happened and, you know, you get your rights back. But I think it's a really nice uh, way to fill the gaps in between all these systems because it doesn't rely on a criminal history. It doesn't rely on a mental health history. No psychiatrist has to decide that this person is actually severely mentally ill enough to be committed. It just relies on the people who see the signs being concerned enough that they want to take action. And we've seen this in a number of these cases, the Isla Vista shooting and a few others where, you know, in Isla Vista, his parents were so concerned, they sent the police to his house to look and look around and check up on him because he'd been, again, making threatening postings online. He bought a bunch of guns and there was nothing they could do, even though people saw it coming. So I think these orders are really interesting new legislation that, um, might be something, it might be a tool that all these agencies who see all the signs, it might be something they can use in the absence of criminal or mental health prohibitions. What frustrates me about the Florida shooting, obviously the loss of life, but what frustrates me as I watch the debate unfold is that I just don't have much faith that there'll be monumental change relative to the nation's gun laws. And I look at the failure of data integration. My audience is tired of me using these buzzwords, but (laughs) the left hand and right hand had no idea the other existed. The DCF file not coordinated with the FBI, not coordinated with Broward County, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then I read your essay and I thought, wait, my whole my whole solution is is to at least make sure that each of the people having interactions with him as part of a process know what the other has learned and then yeah. then along you come and you make me worry that maybe that's not even going to be enough i think it's not enough because i know that it was reported you know that each of those agencies deemed him to be not dangerous and again i wasn't there right, but I don't they know didn't know what, what the do, other but... had right like if you're dcf right. and you don't know that the sheriff has been there 39 times then maybe you wouldn't think he's dangerous right. either or maybe, and I can see, because I can see myself being uh, covered in the media in a similar fashion, maybe it's not that I deemed that this guy wasn't dangerous, because I certainly would have never said that. Maybe I just deemed that there was nothing I could do about it with the tools I had. Right. And I wonder if that's more the conclusion of the reports of these agencies. Um, but again, yeah, I think data integration would be great. I mean, because of privacy laws, I wasn't even able to talk to his parents mm-hmm. or the police who brought him over. So... You know, in this case, I had enough information from him to be concerned. But how many other cases did somebody have this kernel of information that would have really been the tipping point for me that I couldn't access? Hey, one one more thought. So if the following week he went to buy a weapon, the fact that you had even had this interaction would not have been known. Am I right? Well, so in California, and we are something of a rarity here, because I admitted him to a hospital for being dangerous. He would be prohibited in this state only for five years. He would not meet federal prohibitory criteria until he goes before a judge and gets committed, which didn't happen. If he were in any, almost any other state, um, he, he would have been admitted to the hospital, let go by the judge, and not landed on anybody's prohibition list. Okay, well, I like that. I like the fact that at least you were able to, to implement that. Me too. And I think that's another great way that if people, you know, do, that's a small thing people can do with the mental health system is just 
lower the threshold a little bit for gun violence prohibitions. And if you get admitted to a hospital for dangerousness, maybe there should be a temporary prohibition on firearm purchases. I learned some things. I really appreciate your being here. Amy Barnhorst, Vice Chairwoman of Community Psychiatry at UC Davis. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. You're listening to Aiming for Facts, a week-long deep dive into America's gun culture. Here's Michael Smirkanish. Dr. Andrew Lee is a member of the Australian Parliament. He's a former professor of economics at the Australian National University. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Tell me about the accessibility to semi-automatic weapons before 1996, before Martin Bryant in Australia. Well, they were still fairly hard to get hold of in Australia, but uh, available beyond those who uh, needed them for the purposes of uh, uh, controlling feral pigs, for example. So one of the big changes in 1997 uh, was uh, putting in place a national licensing scheme and restricting access to firearms to sporting shooters uh, and, uh, and, and farmers. 
that led to a big uh, buyback, uh, about 650,000 guns handed in, about a fifth of the total a total gun stock. Uh, so uh, in, in the uh, uh, United, United States context, uh, that, that is the equivalent to uh, the millions of guns being handed back in. Who was Martin Bryant, and what exactly was the crime that he committed around the Port Arthur tourist site? Martin Bryant was a easily deranged man who uh, was in a, an idyllic place in uh, Port Arthur in Tasmania, the, the very southernmost part of Australia. Uh, began shooting in a tourist de- destination and ended up killing 35 people. You've got to remember, Michael, that our population is uh, about one-fourteenth of yours. So uh, in relative terms, uh, the Port Arthur Massacre in Australia would be like an American shooting that uh, cost 400 lives. Some say, well, it's unfair, despite what you've just said, to compare Australia and the United States because mass shootings had been so rare in your country prior to the Bryant killing and the ultimate buyback plan. So that's simply not true. Uh, over the decade before Port Arthur, we had had an average of one mass shooting every year. In the decade afterwards, uh, we didn't have a single mass shooting. Uh, now, that might have nothing to do with the buyback, but uh, the odds that you go from one a year to none for a decade, uh, just by chance, are about one in a hundred. So I think most people will uh, admit that uh, there was uh, an impact on mass shootings with the Australian gun buyback. Uh, what uh, my co-author, Christine Neal, and I found, though, was that there was also an impact on firearms suicide and firearms homicide more broadly. Uh, most people who die in uh, gun deaths uh, aren't victims of mass shootings. The person most likely to kill you with a gun is yourself. Uh, and so by halving the share of firearms-owning households, uh, there was a significant impact on uh, uh, spousal killings and suicides. Dr. Lee, is one of the governing lessons, one of the policy lessons, that time is of the essence? And I ask that because I know from an opinion piece that you published in the Washington Post that within 12 days, indeed, before all the victims had been laid to rest, Australia's police ministers had met and unanimously agreed on the measures to tighten licensing and registration requirements and restrict access to semi-automatic weapons. Yes, it's extraordinary to look back on it, that uh, it was within that first fortnight of the massacre that uh, that Australians had acted. Uh, and acted not in a way that shut down sporting shooting. Uh, I mean, I've got, uh, I'm a federal member of parliament and in my electorate, when I go for a run in the morning, I run past both the rifle range and the pistol range in my electorate. I'll often hear people practicing away there. Uh, but people don't tend to have uh, a handgun in the bedside table, in the car glove box, tucked into the waistband when the teenager is out on a Saturday night. So uh, a violence which, uh, which often uh, in the United States might be a shooting in Australia becomes a punch-up. You speak today as a member of the opposition Labour Party in the Australian House, but this change was brought back under the leadership of a Conservative Prime Minister, John Howard, and his deputy, Tim Fisher. True bipartisanship, Correct. Absolutely. Uh, and they paid a political price for it. I mean, I've spoken to Tim Fisher, who was the leader of the Nationals, a rural-based Conservative Party in Australia, and he says that they lost seats the following election as a result. But he's extraordinarily proud to look back at the reform uh, and to look back at the fact that around 200 Australians are alive every year 
as a result of uh, the buyback that took place and as a result of tightening up firearms laws and just making sure that they're not casually, casually left around in Australia, uh, but that we're very deliberate in how we, how we ma- manage guns. Uh, so, you know, if you're on a farm, you will have, have people with a, with a gun to go out and shoot rabbits or feral kangaroos. Uh, but you, you won't, you won't have a gun just sitting in the back of the closet, uh, where a depressive teenager might find it and take his own life. Does it, does it remain nevertheless controversial, politically speaking today, that which was done, the buyback in 1997? I don't think it's controversial, and I uh, think it's actually something of a source of pride for Australia. Uh, there's a recognition that we managed to uh, get, the ba- get the balance right, uh, a recognition that we managed to do something which we thought in the first instance would have an impact on mass shootings, but actually turned out to have an impact uh, on the, the vast, uh, vast majority of uh, gun deaths. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the imp- impact of the buyback uh, continues to uh, reap dividends, uh, indeed, uh, if you use economists' values for the value of a statistical life, uh, the annual social benefit of the buyback seems to be greater uh, than its one-time cost. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good deal for the community as a public health intervention, uh, and uh, it certainly hasn't meant that Australia is a gun-free nation. Uh, it simply takes, it takes us back to you know, something a bit closer to where the United States was in the 1960s, when you had an NRA that uh, wasn't in favour of guns in every instance, but campaigned uh, with the government against Saturday night specials, for example. Uh, so that, uh, that, that moment before the Cincinnati takeover where the NRA was in favour of getting the balance right, I, I think is, is where Australia is now. You've obviously paid very close attention to the gun debate in the United States. One other aspect, if I may, I don't want to gloss over the reference that you made to your research research that you had done with an economist named Christine Neal. Can you summarize for my radio audience the most significant findings? So we, Christine and I looked at the Australian gun buyback in two different ways. First of all, we looked at the time series. Basically, the question is uh, whether gun deaths began to fall faster after the buyback than before. Uh, and we, from that, concluded it looks like it did. But it's a bit hard to draw too much from how fast the line is sloping down. What we think is the better approach is to look across states in Australia and ask the question, in states where there were more guns brought back, did the gun death rate fall, fall more rapidly? Uh, and there we find a, a clear impact. Uh, and it looks to us as though the saving is about 200 lives a year. Uh, and that means that uh, the ch- chances that uh, an Australian will be killed by a gun is much smaller. Uh, America has more guns than people. Australia has about one gun for every seven people. Uh, this year, about uh, one in 10,000 Americans will be killed by a gun. Fewer than one in 100,000 Australians will be killed by a gun. Uh, so we have a seventh of your guns and a tenth of your gun death rate. And finally, Dr. Lee, some who will hear this conversation all across the United States will be saying, yes, but what separates us from Australia is our Second Amendment. You have nothing like that enshrined in the paperwork that governs your government. My understanding of the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Second Amendment is uh, it doesn't uh, stand in the way of getting the balance right on, on gun control. Uh, no one's talking about banning all guns. Uh, it's simply about ensuring that uh, uh, guns are in the hands of uh, law enforcement, of farmers, of sporting shooters, uh, of people who are appropriately well-trained. 
but they're, they're not easily accessible when t- uh, blood, blood, blood runs, uh, runs hot. Uh, and, uh, and in Australia, you can't have a, a handgun sitting in the bedside table for personal protection, uh, which has an immediate impact on the chances that uh, a family dispute will end with a, with a gunshot. Uh, far fewer young, young Australians take their, take their lives with a gun, which is, of course, such a tragically effective way of committing suicide. Uh, if somebody tries an alternative method of committing suicide, they're more likely to fail and, and more likely to get the, the help they need as a, as a result. Uh, and the suicide effect, Michael, is, is one of the really surprising impacts out, out, out of this uh, and one of the great public health benefits to the Australian 1997 gun reform. I said before, this is my final question, only this time I really mean it. One of the one of the observations that I have made in the aftermath of what we just experienced in Florida was what I regarded. I said this on CNN as an epic failure of data integration. The the left hand and right hand literally did not know what the other knew about this particular shooter. Has the integration Mm. of data been a focus of the Australian government? Well, I mean, I think that we, we certainly have uh, national, national uh, registration and licensing schemes, uh, but I also think there is some impact as the overall accessibility in quantum of guns. Uh, people often look at Switzerland and say, well, Switzerland has a lot of guns. Well, yes, but they also have some pretty careful rules about how those guns are stored. And uh, much as we'd like to believe that dirty Harry fantasy that guns are used to defend goodies from baddies, uh, actually the world is, is much more complicated than that. Uh, depressed teen finds dad's gun, an angry spouse turns their rifle on a cheating partner, uh, a young boy opens the bedside drawer, finds a loaded gun, in, a gun inside, and goes and takes out his anger on his brother. Uh, all of those horrific situations uh, are less likely to occur in Australia as a result of our gun reforms. Dr. Lee, if you don't end this conversation by wishing me good day, I'm going to be bummed. <laughs> I hope you... Uh, well, good day is normally what we say, say uh, as, a, as a greeting, Michael, but I'm very happy to wish you a, an excellent day. Uh, good luck with an incredibly complicated uh, debate. I lived in the United States from 2000 to 2004. Uh, I have a, a deep admiration for the, for the nation and, and very much hope it's, it's possible to learn something from the Australian experience. You have um, been... Every country is unique, but we can always learn from one another. You have been most gracious. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. That's Dr. Andrew Lee. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Absolute pleasure, Michael. Thanks thank, for the conversation. Thank you, sir. Well, that's it. I mean, that's our last guest of Gun Week. How many did we have? Let me just see. We had Herman Lopez, Adam Lankford, John Donahue... John Lott, Lawrence Tribe, Amy Howe, Jeff and Ted Nugent, Pat Dunphy, Josh Koscuff, David Hemingway, yours truly, Bruce Castor, Amy Barnhorst, and Andrew Lee. Did I you lost count? count. Oh, no. come on. I thought I, I was count. doing I thought you were checking off like one, two, three, four, a slash lot. a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot, and I hope everybody learned something. And if you missed some of 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 the interviews, or you want to go back or refresh your memory, or also get um, some of the um, some of the articles that are associated that made you want to talk to these people in the first place, they're all posted on smirconish.com. So we have a, a short bio of each of the interviews. We have a link to either their website or something they wrote or something that was written about them, and we have the audio posted so you and get now, it all and now tc Such can i resource. say thank you for that and now can 
I say it's all there because as on Monday we would put up Monday's sure. content, and we didn't want to we didn't want to jump the shark on ourselves. So Tuesday came Tuesday's content, and so on and so forth. And so now everything's there. If if you didn't hear John Lott, uh, more guns, less crime. He was a Tuesday guest. It's there. If you missed Lawrence Tribe doing a tutorial on the Second Amendment. It's there. Amy Howe from SCOTUS blog talking about the Heller case. The debate on background checks from the Brothers Nugent. How about the trial bars response? Pat Dunphy from Wisconsin or Josh Koskoff from uh, Connecticut, the representative of the Sandy Hook families. Herman Lopez began the week from, from Vox. And of course, tomorrow... Is the big march tomorrow? Is the march, and, and that's why we did this entire week, and I'm so proud of it. And let me let me just say, thank you to you, because you had to work with me to do these interviews and to cut up the tape that we used from the archives. And I think it, it's astounding stuff. And and if you go to the website, you know there it is. I want to thank Dan for being so able and competent and pulling off from a production standpoint all that was just required. I salute Jamie Pilch as well, the editor of our website, because as you mentioned, Smirconish.com looks tremendous. And we are leaving this up through the weekend for the march. And I also think there's good balance here. I think there's really good balance of, of perspective. So that if you, t- you know, don't just look at Monday, don't just look at Thursday, look at the whole week. Yeah, Ted Nugent's there. there are angles on everything, debating his own brother. Right. So on balance, it's everything that I could have hoped for. And if you go to Smirconish.com, you can listen to it at your leisure. If you missed something, if you want the background information, if you want to share it with a friend, help me uh, by putting out all this data with no agenda other than to educate. Because if you want to know what is my takeaway from the week, I think we've got far too many uh, uh, guns in the country uh, and in the wrong hands. But it's, it's complicated. I mean, it is a complicated dynamic. That's the bottom line. Go to the website. I'll see you tomorrow on CNN. Have a great weekend. Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.